You are listening to the sermon series, Follow. In this sermon, Pastor Dan Chung examines the gospel according to Luke, the identity of Jesus, and the cost of discipleship. The following is a presentation of LifeLight Church in San Francisco. For more information and other audio content, please visit LifeLightChurch.org. Well, we had our retreat, and we came back, and uh, nothing's changed, but we know the work that we have to do, and from this point on, uh, you, you just do what we do, right, day to day, doing our thing, going to school, going to work, you know, being with our family, being with our friends, and we carry on, and we remind ourselves, and remind each other about the work that we have to do, the life that we need to live, to show that we are people who belong to the kingdom. We are different, and we want to lead them to the kingdom, lead them to Christ. And that's sort of the, what we do. And there's really nothing going on in this church. You know, we, we meet on Sunday, we gather on Sunday, and we gather during the week. And uh, we have started this prayer meeting. We've started the introduction, which we just pray a little bit at the end, but it'll grow more and more as we are getting more comfortable. And it'll be, you'll be challenged. How many of you were challenged? With that silent 10 minutes of silence on Wednesday. Right? Some of you were, right? Like, uh, what do I do now? It's like too long then. Longer than I thought. You're used to like a minute. Even a minute has been long for you. It'll be more. And uh, it's for you to be challenged and really grow into what it means to devote time to prayer. And don't forget your homework. All of you are to have a, your designated set time for daily prayer. Um, play time that it's comfortable, time that it's not rushed, and time that you can actually focus on. So, um, Rob will go through that on Wednesday and make sure that we're all on the same page. And there will be more as we come um, that will lead us to having really a greater, uh, better prayer life for us. So that's what we do. You know, we meet on Sunday, we meet during the week. Um, you live your lives outside the community. We don't want to hold you in the community. We want to Send you out. Live your life outside in schools, in works, and with your friends. And um, no other events except the next one that's coming up is Thanksgiving, which is a great, great opportunity for you to bring friends and family to celebrate together. And then Christmas. And then there will be fun winter retreat. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> and uh, I will have to, you know, we'll, we'll plan on that when it comes near then. But that's where we are out there, living our lives, living differently, and sharing the gospel, whether it's with words or with just the way that you live and your action and stuff. So let's live diligently, uh, persevering, and also boldly. That's one of the things we're going to talk about today. What we have today, the text we have today is the story of the crucifixion. Many of us know it. How many of you seen the Passion, the movie Passion? How many who hasn't seen it? Everyone's. You haven't seen the movie Passion. You haven't seen the movie Passion. Yeah. Passion of Christ, yeah. Passion, Passion of Christ, really. I wasn't with you guys. Okay, yeah. Well, it came out long time ago. Now, um, I was in seminary, right? Yeah, we were in seminary. It's like oh four, oh five. So it was a long time ago. Wow, ten years ago now. Yeah. Well, you've seen movie that had to do with crucifixion of Jesus in some point, right? Whether it's really a movie from sixties or seventies and. So we're going to dive into that, uh, but I want to focus on two things. 
for us to focus on first what happened. We need to be reminded. We need to sort of understand deeper in what happened there. And secondly, what Luke does specifically for us in his uh, writing is who were there, the people that were there, and there were a lot of people there. And Luke involves a lot of people. And as you know, when you watch a movie or when you re- when you read a story, there's a main character, but those around them, how they react, how they act toward the main character, really defines how you would approach the situation, how you would believe or approach this person, the main character, how you would play out if you were in the story. That's what kind of what Luke is doing. Luke is saying, look at all these people that surround this this story of crucifixion. And he's asking, what about you? Which one are you among these people? Which one were you? Which one do you want to be? Is really the question that Luke leads us. So let me pray, and we'll read the text, and we'll dive in. Jesus, we... Humbly approach to you in this story, it is too much for us to take on and even imagine and to understand because it's beyond us and our understanding. And I pray that your spirit will guide our thoughts, our mind, and will give us understanding, but it will also convict us, challenge us in the way that Luke has intended for his readers to be, because of, and we'll receive what you have done plainly, honestly. And it will lead us to respond to you in the way that your spirit would form us and guide us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So let's go ahead and read the text. It's long. Well, it's only like 40 verses. And uh, I'll go ahead and read, as usual, first one verse and you read the next. So this is Luke chapter 23, verse 26 to 65, which is the end of the chapter. Verse 26. As they led him away, they seized the man. Simon of Siren, who was coming from the country, and they laid laid the cross on him, and made him carry it behind Jesus. But Jesus turned to them and said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Then they will begin to say to the mountain, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. Two others also, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots to divide his clothing. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine. There was also an inscription over him, This is the King of the Jews. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do not do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. Then Jesus, crying with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I command my spirit. 
Having said this, he breathed his last. When the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God and said, Sir, leave this man And when all the crowds who had gathered there for the spectacle saw and what had taken place, they returned home, beating their breasts. Now there was a good and righteous man named Joseph, who, though a member of the council, this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointment. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandments. The word of the Lord. Well, what do you think? Um, Luke encounter is slightly different from, you know, it has added things that we haven't really saw or knew and um, something strange maybe you might notice. What do you think? Any thoughts? Something that stood out to you? It was interesting to see the thief talk to the other thief. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were arguing. They were, yeah, one was rebuking, one was saying stuff. Yeah. What else? I like that they said it was a spectacle. It's not really a spectacle. But how they described it, it's the whole spectacle. Yeah, it was an interesting way to describe. Uh, I would translate it, right? Yeah. What else? What does the quote, blessed are barren in the wombs that ever bore and the breast that ever nursed mean? Yeah, um, it's it's sort of like upside down blessing, right? Blessed because in, in, in this culture, if you don't have a child, then you are cursed, right? You're considered blessed to have many children. It's an upside down blessing. And... I can explain it later, but I can do it now. It refers to basically the, the what's coming ahead, uh, which is the, the revolt and how Romans would come in and seize the city in AD 70. And uh, it's recorded uh, in historical writings that the wailing of women could be heard across the mountains because of everyone basically starved to death. There are stories that actually mothers ate their children because of the starvation. It went for months and they starved them. So there was, it's that. So what it's saying is, you can be, in the, you will be. Jesus has said it over and over, how what's going to happen to Jerusalem. Jerusalem will be destroyed and you'll be in it. And you'll be thankful. If you end up in it, you'll be thankful to be a woman without children. Because you will suffer. Yeah, that's striking. And let me give you a little warning ahead. There will be some graphical... Um, you know, description, um, I would have to sort of throw it out to you. So I know that you're all adults and we'll make sure Hannah can hear. <laughs> Esther would kind of work that out. Um, well, this is what, and the title of the message here, and it's kind of blunt, but it's simple. It's basically the three historical facts. Jesus was crucified, he died, and he was buried. And it's significant that we take that on because there's argument against that takes away what it meant for Jesus to have done what he has done on the cross. So that's, those are three historical facts. And what's really interesting is, 
despite what we want to know, like all of us thinking, well, we want to know more. What did exactly happen? What did it mean? Like he was crucified. What is crucifixion like? You know, obviously Luke's audience have seen crucifixion, maybe a lot. And they know it doesn't need to be explained any further because while he's writing, crucifixion is still going on, right? But what we realize, it's only 40 verses. It's so... Like we want to know more. We make we dramatize it. We make movies out of it and books out of it. We want to know. We want to stretch out the stories and really want to know. But for the writers of gospels, it's a short story. And basically, their meaning is Jesus was crucified, took our sin, died, and he was buried. It's almost it. That's all you need to know, right? That's all there is to know. And most of audience in first century would understand what that meant and what that carried on. But it is interesting how brief, how short. The uh, description of these stories, when it is such a significant story for for us. So let's kind of go back, go down the story of what happened, right? We want to understand what happened. We know that before this all began, Jesus was arrested and he was betrayed. He stood in trial. He was humiliated. He was abused and he suffered. He took beatings. We need to understand the beating. He took beatings from the moment he was arrested to the to, into the morning. It says he was blindfolded and he was he was beat. Right? He was beat down to regular soldiers. He might have been just being punched, kicked at, or you know, beat up with a stick. He continuously got beaten up. And then there's a pilot comes through and he talked about um, Jesus being you know, beat up, taking a beating. And that beating is particular in that this is a scourging. And if you've seen the movie of the, the Passion of the Christ, you know what this is, right? Scourging is such a severe beating that most men cannot take it. And men have told been actually dying in the process of being scorched. And some of you know this, right? Um, this is uh, the way it's done. It's a man who's stripped naked, you know, nearly naked or naked, is shackled to either the post or the rock and is getting beat up. And this thing called flagrum is basically stick with strips of leathers and at the end of the leather is a piece of metal and this metal has a hook. And this leather is thick and wide and two men were standing besides a person who's getting scorched, and they do 39 times, right? 39 times, because 40, you kill a man. They say, well, we don't want to, th- we want to 40, we'll do 39. Um, and they would whip, right? But whip would come down, they would whip the man, and the leather would slap on the skin, bare skin, and it would stay there, and it kind of tenderize the meat skin. And they would yank it back, and what it does is not only has the meat, the skin been tenderized, the metal piece at the end which has a hook would grab on the skin deep skin just rip the skin out of you right and it's been hurt it's been told that there are sometimes you're getting whipped and when you're doing that it'll catch the rib and a rib will broke and just could fly off right i mean it's the severe beating it says that when a man comes out from scourging you can barely recognize who this person is their back is just skinned off completely right so that's what jesus took even before he went into the cross. So, you know that he was a strong man. He's a carpenter. I've been doing work downstairs. We've been carrying bricks on Thursday. It makes you be strong. And you know that Jesus was, for 30 years, all his life, he was a carpenter. He was a strong man. So, maybe that's why he was able to took on this beating. He was able to took on this beating. But he went beyond recognition, bleeding, and basically... At the moment when he comes to where we are, he's basically trying to stay alive. He's trying to stay alive. And not only that, we are told in other Gospels and this that he took a crown of thorns. And this isn't like 
as a child, I imagine like Jesus took on a crown of thorns. What is that like? Right? This isn't like a rose thorn, small thorn. This is a spike, right? Spikes thick thorn, and he took on the. So all over his body, he's bleeding, and all the time he's being ridiculed. He's being mocked the whole way. So what he does when it came time for the cross. Um, explain more about what, what the crucifixion is like, but Jesus would take on the crossbar. So, he doesn't take on the whole cross, but just the bar that would that he would be nailed on is what he takes. And this bar is just a beam of wood, solid beam, and it weighs about 100 pounds. It weighs about 100 pounds. So, what happened is, they would throw this beam on top, on the back. He's scorched back, on his back, and what had happened is, he'll just collapse. It'll just, he'll just Boom! Other gospel, he just got slammed on the ground when he, when they threw the beam on his back. And the science, the medical study has has shown that what that feels like, it's going on a high speed and having a straight on car rack, and when your body hits to the your steering wheel. So what happens is you get internal hemorrhage, bleeding, and you get your you know basically heart crushed, and that's what happened. So. Jesus has thrown this crowbar on him. He collapsed. He cannot carry. It's obvious that he can't. So that's where we find our text. Somebody else needs to carry it. So they get someone else to carry it. So he's taken up. He gets crucified. This crucifixion, we don't know. And But what we know of is it's the most horrible death that one can you know, actually experience. There can be, there are worse ways to die. As in like more painful but the way that how crucifixion is so bad is, this is like when someone says, quick death is so easy for you. I'm going to kill you slowly. That you would wish that I would kill you quickly. It's, one, it's that kind of death. Because crucifixion would last for days. It's told that actually crucifixion can last as long as nine days. So the, the origin of crucifixion was, you know, it was invented by Persians, the great Persians. And what it did was they would basically have big, log, long log, and make a sharp pointy stick at the end, and they'll just stick it through a man. And they'll put that log and stake it to the ground. So the man will be hanging like this, on a stick, just bleeding to death for days. That was the, the Persian's crucifixion. And Romans took it, and they kind of perfected how it should be done, and that's what they've done. And, but Persians was bleeding to death. Romans was more of a, um, the, what's the word for it? Uh, asphyxation, right? Asphyxation, which means you die because you can't breathe anymore. So what we what we know is you're on the cross, nailed. It's most sensitive parts in your body, feet and uh, hands and foot, and but you're hung down. So you're being, your lungs getting collapsed. So you're trying to pick yourself up. So you slowly die of you know losing your oxygen. So you're constantly picking yourself up to. Uh, stay alive and try to breathe and you go in and out of consciousness and this will last for days. Some would try to just go <gasps> collapse so they put like a sit under your under your leg so that you stay alive. And another thing is this isn't like we get an image of Jesus way, way up high but most crucifixion is done on the ground level and they're completely na- naked and uh, their bodies out of control. So what we do is people walk by they can see the pe- person eye to eye who's being crucified. So the shame in public for days, being sped on, right, and just being out of control, and that's what the crucifixion is, and it lasts for days. So it was by far the worst way to die. 
And so even Romans, it was told that Roman citizens would not even speak a word crucifixion because it was so horrible. And, uh, and Romans really, really used this to show that they are in control. And whenever people go out of control, they would do this. One of the uh, most famous events of crucifixion is when Spartacus, Spartacus fell and Romans came in and they crucified 6,000 people. And they say the cross went for 220 miles. That's long. That's like if you're driving for two hours, the all you see on the side of the road is people being crucified. And uh, we know that Jesus may have seen crucifixion when he was little, because in AD 4, um, Romans came in when there was a revolt in, uh, in Israel, in Jerusalem, and they took and they crucified a whole lot of people. So it is possible and probably so that Jesus had witnessed crucifixion as he was growing up. So imagine Jesus knowing what it is and knowing where he's going, knowing that's what he's going to get, having to witness what crucifixion is like, right? So this is Jesus on the cross. In all its shame and in all its pain, um, he says a few words, right? He says, one of the most famous words that we know is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we understand that as something has happened, why would Jesus call on God for having to forsake him? Which means something happened. And we don't know how, how, but something happened in that Jesus took on our sins, so God turned his back against Jesus. And uh, the, we know the verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 21 says, that God made him who knew no sin to become sin. He has become sin of all men at this moment. And that might have been the worst suffering for Jesus, to be disconnected from God, took on the suffering, took on the sin of all people. And all at the same time, while he's getting mocked at, right, ridiculed, um, but at the same time, he says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And what's amazing is, you read through this scene, and what, what, would it, what is it like for Jesus? What would it have been like Jesus? And one thing we come across is, Jesus, while all this is going on, did not think for himself. He did not think for himself. He was thinking of everyone else. He was trying to save this thief, right? He was looking at the woman, talking to women. Right? He was saying to forgive them, watching these people who was mocking him. The one thing that he wasn't thinking was himself. He was thinking of others. And that's what we see. Jesus saying, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. He's going through the suffering in his mind, and his heart is filled with love in this time, at this time. Verse 46, it says, Then Jesus, crying with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. So Jesus died. He died. He didn't last nine, nine days, or even two. He lasted maybe a couple of hours. Right? He died. And his death is checked by professional executioners. He died. Everybody knows he died. And this is important that we believe that he died, we know that he died, and gospel writers try, wants to make sure that, look, he died. Everybody knows he died. Executioners checked to see he died. They speared under his reef and punctured his heart. And what came out? What Blood and water. And blood and water is, are not in the heart together. He already died. So there was a mix of water and blood in his heart. That's why they both flowed, you know, flowed out, which means he died not of uh, asphyxiation, but because of his 
heart was collapsed. Probably because of all the beating and scourging and the cross on the, you know, the cross on his shoulder. So by the time he got there, it wasn't the lack of, you know, air. His lung being crushed, he died because his body gave up. His heart gave up, basically. So it's an important fact that we need to know and not be confused that Jesus died. There are people who say, well, this guy Simon, maybe because he took Jesus' cross, he was mistaken as Jesus and he died on the cross. No. People would know, the leaders over there, they would know what Jesus looks like and the other guy looks like. There is no confusion. Jesus did not take some kind of, what is it, a painkiller that made him, like in a spy movie, you take a little pill and you can act like you died and then you can come up. That didn't happen. There was no such thing. Executioners knew what happened and they're professionals and Jesus died. So that's, and, and what we know, also further proof that is that he was buried. Verse 53 said, wrapped in a linen cloth and laid in a rock-hewn tomb where no one had been, ever been laid. So Jesus, a man had gone through beating, suffering, and cannot survive with medical treatment. He died, he was buried, he was wrapped around in almost 100 pound uh, linen cloth and spices that keeps the body, right? And his, team, his tomb was a brand new. No one's been in it, no one else is in it, it's just him. And that's important too, because there are people who would argue, oh, you know, Jesus, you know, the empty tomb, that was probably somebody else's bone that was missing. Oh, how did a woman know whether it was Jesus' body that was missing or somebody else's body? No, Jesus was the only one in the tomb. This was a brand new tomb. There cannot be a mistake to figure out, did something else happen? No, Jesus was in the tomb. He was the only one who was buried. It was sealed with Roman seal and it was guarded by Roman guards who... If failed, would face persecution. I mean, would face death sentence. So there's no mistake. That's what happened. Jesus was crucified, died, and was buried. Now let's look at who was there. How did they act and how did they react? Well, we know the first person we see in our story is Simon the Siren. And uh, this character, what we know is that Siren is a country in North Africa and in, this is today's modern-day Libya area. So it's northern Africa. Apparently, he came for pilgrimage because this was a Passover. So he came came to check out what's going on. Probably didn't know what was entirely happening because he's from another country. And he gets to be pulled out by the Roman soldier. And he's told to, he's seized by the Roman soldiers to carry Jesus' cross behind him. So you could say, oh, what a unlucky guy, right? And he gets to carry Jesus' cross. But what Luke is doing is really interesting. Um, we know that in, in through the gospel, we memorize that where Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me, right? And this guy literally does it. He takes up the cross and he follows Jesus. He says he walked, took up Jesus' cross and walked behind Jesus. So what Luke is doing is taking this story and showing us, this is he's the first one to do it. He's the only one to literally do it. But here's the guy who's taking up the cross and following Jesus. And just like the Last time when we read, Barabbas was the person who literally had his place replaced. He was to die and crucify, but Jesus took his place and saved him. Right? So Luke is showing us, look, the literal depiction of what it means. Um, but this guy, what we know in the, in the, through the history and speculation is that he became a believer. He became a Christian. And what we know is his children became 
Christians. He had two sons, and it says in Mark chapter 15, verse 21, he had two sons, Alexander and Rufus. And there is mention of a church leader named Rufus in Romans chapter 16. So, you always gotta, gotta be curious, like, in the same way as um, Bartholomew, when, we read, when you read somebody's name in the Bible and the character, you realize people know this person. Something happened to this person, good or bad, and we know that the Simon, the event affected when he became a believer. And his generation behind him became Christians. So we take that and, you know, some of you are not first generation Christians. I'm third generation Christian. My grandparents uh, became first believers. Some of you are first generation believers. What's it going to be for you, your family, when you have your children and grandchildren? Your legacy really is passing that faith down like this guy has. And that's your greatest legacy is making sure the children who follow you become believers. If you really have heart after God. I had met somebody who is, she's a Christian, but she said, I grew up, my dad's a believer, but he's like, well, believe whatever you want to. I'm not going to pressure you and try to brainwash you. So she said he just left her to believe whatever she wants to believe. That's not right, right? The legacy that we want to leave is making sure that our children, your children, your great-grandchildren, your family becomes believers. So that's Simon. Um, he became a believer. Uh, that's what we speculate. And there, there are two criminals, what we see. And uh, we know this story. Um, Jesus is hung on the cross with two others. Verse 39 to 41 says, One of the criminals who were hanged there kept... Uh, deriding him, deriding him, and saying, "Are you are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us." But the other rebuked him, saying, "Do not do you not fear God? If you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed have been condemned justly, we're getting what we deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong." So there are two. And again, Luke is at work displaying, depicting one becoming a believer. Same scenario, same situation. They're looking, observing same things, but one mocks Jesus, one, believes in Jesus. Really weird. And this guy speaks the words of the Satan. And there are three people who does it in this scene, who says, well, if you're God, and remember the temptation of Jesus, one of the temptations was what? Second one says, well, if you're God, call down the angels and to save you, right? Jump off the building and you call down the angel and save you. They're saying the exact, the same words as Satan has speak, spoke, which means, well, if you're God, save yourself. And us. So he's saying the words of Satan. While the other one. Is believing. The other one is basically saying. I, be, I, don't, I deserve this. You don't. I want to be with you. While the other one is saying. I'm not impressed by you. You're not giving me anything to believe. I'm not getting anything from you. Are you really who you are? And I think. We sometimes end up in that place. Or our friends do it. Like what Jesus. What, what's he got done for me? What am I getting out of this? I'm not very impressed of Jesus. I'm not very impressed of God because what can He do for me? While the other one looks at it and says, I deserve this. You don't. But I want to be with you. And He's invited to be with Jesus. So the question for us is, which one are you? Or which one do you think do you want your friends to be? Another group is a woman. These are women from Jerusalem that's following Jesus as he's carrying the cross. 
and they're weeping for Jesus. Um, and says, Jesus replied, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. And I explained that he talks of what's to come. Um, and it's interesting. You know, you watch Passion. I have friends who watch Passion, who are Passion of Christ and who are not believers. And you have your friends who watched, or maybe you have when you're not believers, and your impression is, yeah, man, it was really sad. Right? Man, I cried. And you're like, okay. And you know how these words apply? And my thought was, for my friends, was, don't just feel bad for Jesus. What about you? And Jesus saying, don't weep for me. Don't be sorry for me. I'm doing exactly what I was supposed to do for God. Weep for yourselves. What's to come for you? And it's not wrong. It's okay to feel sorrowful what Jesus has gone through because we love Jesus. But it's not enough. Jesus said, that's not enough. What about you? What awaits you? The eternal suffering that awaits you. What's going to happen to you? Do not weep for Jesus. We need to weep for those who are dying. And another group is the large group. It says, great number of crowd in verse 27. And these are people who hung on every word of Jesus in the temple. These are people who follow Jesus. These are people who were fed by Jesus. These are people who witnessed all the miracles of Jesus. And they're following him. And what's going on? I mean, what has happened to them? They're just following, observing, witnessing the spectacle that's going on. And what I think is going on is a lot of people are in this category. They're just passively believing or unbelieving. And there really isn't two different ones. When you're passive, you're just unbelieving. You're just not believing. They're just mere observers of things. They're not really against Jesus. They're not for Jesus. They're kind of indifferent. They may make, be making judgments in their minds, you know, what the situation is about, but they're not really showing. They don't want to be rude. They don't want to be divisive and, you know, argue. They just want to be good. They say, oh, I just want to be nice to people, cordial and, you know, polite. But in it, they're just passive. They're not making any decisions. They're not for or against. They're just passively unbelieving. And we see that a lot, you know. People who come to church, people who don't come to church, just, oh, I'll come to church. Oh, yeah, I'm not against you. Jesus is good. And we see that in, like, celebrities or politicians a lot, right? Christianity is good. Jesus is good, right? But Jesus says, if you're not, you're either for me or against me. There is no middle ground. There is no passively believing. There is no place to be indifferent. You're either for Jesus or against Jesus. And in verse 48 says, And when all the crowds who had gathered there and saw, and for this spectacle saw what had taken place, they returned home, beating their breasts. They felt sorrowful. But is that enough? Is it enough to be sorrowful of what had taken place? Or should they be sorrowful of themselves, weeping for themselves? And while there are passive unbelievers, like the crowd, there are active unbelievers too, right? We witness soldiers in verse 34 and 36, and we witness the leaders. These are active unbelievers. They're actively opposing Jesus. And they're, they're the two other groups that's saying the words of Satan. 
and we see this in verse 35, the soldiers said, he saved others. Let him save himself. Uh, this is the other uh, leaders. Uh, let him save himself if he's the Messiah of God, his chosen one. They're kind of declaring who Jesus is. At the same time, they're saying, well, let him save himself if he really is God. And verse 37, these are the soldiers. If you are the king of Jews, save yourself. They're saying the words of Satan. And how does Jesus respond? He says, Father, forgive them. And what that means is, if Jesus can forgive these guys who actually was there mocking him and killed him, he can save anybody. There's no, there's sin that's no too big, not never too big to be saved, to be forgiven. If Jesus can say, forgive them and be merciful to these men, he can forgive anyone and any sins. And we see some believers, there are centurion in verse 47 says, When the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God and said, Certainly, this man was innocent. Jesus' innocence is and was important for Luke. Because who's his audience? Who's his audience? We did this in Bible quiz, right? Who did he write to? Who is Luke? Who is? His disciple. No. Who is he writing to? The first church. Theophilus. Yeah, but his letter is specifically written to someone, a person who is Theophilus, who is what? Who's this person? Just take a guess. A servant. No. Take a guess. Well, why did I say this is important for Luke to address that Jesus is innocent? He's a he's a Roman. Governor, he's a Roman official. He's writing to a Roman official. He's saying, "Who may well Jesus was crucified?" Every Roman Roman laws are perfect. If someone's crucified, that means that person is guilty. That's the common understanding of Romans, right? And Jesus, is, so Luke is emphasizing: Look, there are people, a Roman centurion who is like the. It's like the Navy SEAL guy. He's, you've seen the movie Centurion. There's a movie. This is the tough guy. right? He's like Navy SEAL, Army Rangers. He's a tough guy. He's an officer in the Army. He's saying, this guy's innocent. And he became a believer. You see what Luke is doing? He's writing to a Roman official and saying, look, there's a Roman soldier officer who believed Jesus to be innocent and who became a believer. And so this guy, <clears throat> tough guy, observes what has happened and he becomes a believer. And there's another guy that we see is a Joseph uh, from Arimathea. And what we know is when there was in Sanhedrin, when there was a the trial going on for Jesus, not all agreed. There were people who were against and it wasn't voted unanimous. And he was a believer. He waited for the kingdom of God. What we know is not only was he a believer of Jesus, out of all the disciples, he acted boldly. And that's, you know, when I look at this story and look at us, <clears throat> look where we live, and I'm thinking, we need Josephs. We need someone like this in San Francisco who would go up boldly and take chances and make sacrifices for Jesus. He... You know, everything was on stake. He left, he laid down his life and said, 
I'm going to take care of this. I may get kicked out of Sanhedrin. People might beat me. I may get accused as being a follower of Jesus. I'm going to go up against the pilot who is the governor. But I'm going to make this claim. I'm going to make this request. So he said, said he boldly went up to the pilot. And you know, we really need someone who can act boldly. Can act boldly. <clears throat> so, let me close this. What about you? You know, what are you among these people who are there? Who do you want to be? And what does it mean for you to be actively for Jesus? What does it mean for you to live life for Jesus? What does it mean? Can you be bold? Can you be actively believing? Can you be for Jesus and not stand indifferent? Not only did Jesus say, you know, Father, in your hands I command my spirit. One of the things that Jesus said last was what? He said that too, but at the end he said, it is it is finished. Is it? Well, it's, it's interesting. You know, someone pointed it out to me, and it was interesting. Jesus said, it is finished. But is it? Really? When you really look at it, Jesus, who was God, who did all these good things as a healing and bring food for the people, and he could certainly have done more. But he said, it is finished. I'm done. I did, every, I did what I was told to do. So there are two aspects. Right? I think there's something we can learn from this. Is one... It really is finished. He did what he came to do and what God wanted him to do, which was to die for our sins. And that, it is finished. And we really need to remember that and take that in. When we feel like, oh, I need to do more. Oh, what about this sin? We need to remember, Jesus said, it's done. He did it. It's done. It's finished. When we feel like, when our friends think, isn't this isn't it too late for me? Haven't I done too much to receive the mercy? No, Jesus said, it's done. He did it. It's done. There's nothing that can undo what He has done. There's nothing that's too late or too much. Jesus says, it's finished. He's done it. And that's our belief in Christianity. We believe that Jesus did it. Nothing that we don't need to do anything. We can't do more than what He has done. We believe what Jesus has done has saved us, not what we will do or what we can do. And that is what makes us as people of, that follow Christ, different from other religions. Other religions will say, you got to do these things to be saved. We believe, no, there's nothing we can do. Jesus did it. It's done. So it is done. It's done. But the other side of it is, can you say, can we say, it is finished? One of the, uh, my professor um, said, uh, well, look at Jesus. He said, it is finished. But when you look at it, certainly he could have done more. And when you look at our lives and you, you say, well, what do I need to do? And he says, his dad taught him from when he was very little. He said, here's what life is all about. Figure out what God wants, wants, wants you to do for your life and do it. He said, that's all you need to do. Look at Jesus. Jesus figured out, knew what he needed to do, what God, the Father, wanted him to do, and he did it. And he said, it is done. I did what God had me to do. So the question for us is, can you figure out, do you know what God wants you to do for him? 
That's what we do. We figure that out. We do it. So which means, can you, at the end of your life, say, I did it. God, I did what I was told to do. I did what my life was all about. And can you face Jesus face to face and say, I did it. It's done. It is finished. I did what you called me to do. Because I follow you. Can you live your life as Jesus? That's what it means to follow Jesus. Understanding Father, knowing what Father wants you to do, and doing it. So, the story of crucifixion. It's our, you know, it's our symbol, the cross, and it's ridiculous. Christians, first Christians came up with, you know, the symbol of Christian, you know, it came from Tertullian age, so later in the, you know, first century. They said, what should our sign be? And it's the craziest thing they come up with is the cross. And people mocked Christians in first century, called them Jesus freaks. And our sign was a cross. It was out in front of the door. It was inside the home. It was the cross. And this is while crucifixion is going on. It went on until the third century, fourth century. Are these guys crazy? Their symbol is crucifixion. But because that's what's so critical, that Jesus died for our sin. He was crucified, he was died, and he was buried. And that's who we are. We're not a people of philosophy or theory or structure or rules. Who we are is people who follow Jesus. We are a group of people who identify ourselves through Christ. And that's who we need to be because what we witnessed, what we read today, the story of crucifixion is crucial. It's a center of our belief because this is what Jesus came to do and He did it and He finished. And that's what we believe and we are called to follow Him. Living our lives, understanding, finding out what is it that God wants us to do and do it. So, I'm going to pray and I want to invite you to just gather around with the two or three people and just discuss for about five minutes what does cross means to you? What does it mean for you to live life following Jesus? To discover what God wants you to do and do it. Let me pray. Jesus, I pray that we all trust in you and for what you have done. That even though the enemy may tell us that we're not worthy, that we're still guilty and we still should be shamed, that we believe that you have done what needed to be done and we are saved people so that we find joy in you and hope in you. And because of what you have done, we are compelled to live our lives following you. And we pray that you give us courage to go boldly, to be honest with ourselves. At the same time, trust that you have done what we couldn't do and that you have won the victory for us. And I pray that this would give us confidence to stand in, in front of you. And this would give us strength to go on and live our lives whole. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This concludes our presentation. For more information and other audio content, please visit lifelightchurch.org.